You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7. And if you've got kids that are a part of our younger kids class, they can be dismissed to the back. The resurrection is our blessed assurance. We celebrate that together this morning. It was the the message of the early church, as we've talked about before. It was what the Pharisees and those that were in opposition to Christianity tried to uh, stop, tried to thwart, tried to contain that message of resurrection. Um, not because Jesus was the first to ever be resurrected. We know throughout Scripture there were other individuals that experienced resurrection And yet Jesus is the first fruit of a different type of resurrection. And so while Lazarus had come back from the dead, uh, we know in reading the context of that story that after Lazarus' resurrection, those that are trying to stop Christianity want to kill Lazarus because he's telling people about Jesus. So it wasn't Lazarus' resurrection that generated a, a new following. It wasn't that people were following after Lazarus because he was back from the dead. It ultimately pointed to Jesus. And Jesus' resurrection was unique. It was different. It's the type of resurrection that we look forward to. And so while we read of others that were resurrected, even some that were resurrected after Jesus. So as Paul's preaching his lengthy sermon and, and a man named Eutychus passes out and, and falls out of the balcony and dies and he's resurrected, he too would one day die again. That it was a temporary resurrection. It was a resurrection back to this life. Christ resurrected with a glorified body a hope, a, a, a future hope for us as believers that we too one day will experience that type of resurrection. We turn our attention this morning to Genesis chapter 7 verse 1, continuing in our series on the gospel according to Noah as we work through, as we work through um, the book of Genesis, we come to this portion of scripture and I believe it's appropriate as we celebrate Easter, we celebrate the resurrection to turn our attention to, once again, the story of Noah, to see the parallels that Scripture presents about Noah and his account and the the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says in Genesis chapter 7, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you were righteous before me in this generation. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, I pray that you would use your Holy Spirit to teach and encourage. Father, I pray that you would illuminate our hearts to uh, the glorious truth of what your word communicates to us. Father, I pray that it would impact our our uh, minds, our hearts, our wills. Uh, Father, I pray that as our knowledge is increased, that there will be an emotional connection to that knowledge. Um, and that working together, it would lead to transformed lives. Father, as we focus on the resurrection this morning, we pray that we would live resurrected lives in anticipation of that day when we will be radically changed forever. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We saw last week that Jesus is the greater Noah as we focused on the character of Noah. We said that ultimately, while Noah is called a righteous man, a blameless man, that he is not spared from the flood because of his good works, that Ultimately, he is saved just like we are in the New Testament, that his faith was an expression that he believed God's word and was following after God. And so the righteousness that's described there is the same righteousness that Abraham clings to, a righteousness that Romans 4 tells us is by faith, not by any individual work. So Abraham not saved because of circumcision. Abraham not saved because of obedience. Instead, he is saved because of his response of faith. The same for Noah, a man who is called righteous, but not because of his own obedience, but because of Christ's obedience. He's not saved by his worship. He's not saved by law keeping or good works. It's not that Noah has a right to boast in heaven when everyone else has no right. It's not that Noah is a part of a special group that can claim entrance into God's presence for eternity because he earned that right while the rest of us come in the back door through Jesus's righteousness. Noah is saved on the same grounds as we are. 
His mind was impacted by God's word as God came and communicated judgment. Noah comprehended that judgment and began to respond to God's word by building an ark, trusting in Christ for salvation through obedience to God. Noah's heart felt that fear of God's judgment and it led to a response, a faith uh, a faith response that led to an obedient life, specifically obedience to God's instruction regarding the ark. We saw last week that the character of Jesus, the, the righteousness of Jesus is better than any type of obedience that Noah could produce. That Noah's righteousness doesn't save others. That Jesus' righteousness is made available to others according to scripture. That Noah has the same righteousness as we have. The same righteousness that's possessed by faith by all the individuals in Hebrews 11. That Noah provided rest in a sense that, that God cleanses the earth uses Noah and his family to preserve the earth, but that ultimately Jesus is coming in a way to cleanse the earth permanently, where he sets creation free from sin, sets creation free from from the longing that it feels, the subjection that it feels to futility. The Bible says that when Jesus returns, it's not just a simple washing away of things, it's a complete cleansing. Jesus, the better Noah, he brings better salvation to mankind. And I challenged you last week with the, with the expressions of our own faith in the New Testament today that as we look at Hebrews 11 and it talks about the sacrifices that these people made in the Old Testament to express their faith, my challenge to you was what, what is our big claim to faith today? What, what's, a, what's a claim of expression that we make about our own faith in Christ? That, that Noah sacrificed basically everything to build this ark. We talked about the financial ramifications last week. That for Noah to build this ark, it wasn't something that he just started doing on the weekends as a side job or as a hobby. That it probably cost him everything. It meant selling everything. It meant getting rid of everything. It meant a huge financial investment. Just talking about the size of the ark, for any of us to go out and try to build the frame of that today. The amount of, the amount of labor that it would take, the amount of materials that it would take. Many of us don't have that type of money in reserve in the bank to even undertake such an endeavor. It would, call, it would cost us everything. We would have to sell everything, mortgage everything, get rid of everything, and invest everything in that cause. Noah, his expression of faith that he believed God was to build an ark. The challenge to us that we don't miss opportunities that God brings into our life for us to express faith in what he's told us to do. So we come now to Genesis 7-1. As Noah has completed the ark, the Lord invites him and his family to enter the ark. What we find here is that the hope of the gospel rested on God's faithfulness to preserve Noah. As, as we're reading this account, we, we know what happens. But ultimately, Moses wants us to feel the weight of what's about to happen. That, that God is, is put to the test here that if, if he doesn't preserve Noah, if he doesn't save Noah and his family then the gospel, the hope of Genesis 3.15 that a Messiah is coming falls apart because the promise is, is that a descendant from Eve will produce this Messiah. And so if, if, if all of mankind is wiped out in this flood, if no one endures, if no one perseveres, if no one survives, then God can't be trusted. And so we, we read this account, we study this account, realizing that, that God is demonstrating his faithfulness, demonstrating that he can be trusted. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark. In your notes, the ark, it was a, a wrath-protecting vessel. This word for ark is used several times in Scripture, and each time the word ark is applied to a wrath-protecting vessel. It's a refuge from divine judgment. You see in your notes there are three different arcs that are described in Scripture. First, Noah's ark. It protected God's people from his wrath. Noah's ark protected God's people from his wrath. The next time this word pops up is in the story of Moses. Moses' ark. This is the, the, um, the bulrush Story. This is where, where Moses is preserved in a small raft that his mom constructs for him to preserve him. As, as the boys are being killed in Egypt to, uh, to control the population, 
Moses' mom says, I'm not going to see my son perish this way. And so she preserves him in a small boat. The same word used for Noah's ark, used for Moses' vessel. Moses' ark, was, uh, the result was that he was protected, uh, protected God's man from, from Pharaoh and from Satan's assault. Protected God's man from Pharaoh and from Satan's assault. You'll remember we described how Satan has constantly been seeking to destroy the offspring of Eve. And as God steadily reveals more and more uh, in his divine revelation that not only does the Messiah come from Eve, that the Messiah comes from Noah, that the Messiah comes from Abraham, Satan has constantly been working to stop that seed of Eve from being produced. And so what we have in the... The, the account in Egypt is Satan's efforts once again to extinguish the seed that's coming to destroy him. And then lastly, Israel's Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, protected God's people from the law's condemnation. Protected God's people from the law's condemnation. So all three arks used in the Old Testament protected God's people from something, whether it was God himself and his wrath. Whether it was from Satan and his assault and his plans to destroy God's plans, or whether it was from the law, the law, God's holy standards that, that lead to condemnation because man cannot obey them. These arcs that are described all provided protection, temporary protection, until Christ came. And what we find in Scripture is that Christ saves us ultimately from these three biggest threats. When we think about this, these are our three biggest threats as Christians. God's wrath, as, as human beings, God's wrath is a threat against us. Satan's assaults are, are a threat against us. And then the law stands as a threat against us. It's the holy standard that we must, we must uh, live up to if we're to be saved. And so all three of these work against us to condemn us. And what we find is that Christ saves us from all three of these. He's a better ark in all three instances. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. God saves us through Christ from his wrath. Just as Noah was saved from God's wrath in the Old Testament... Christ now saves us in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. We wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Not only that, Christ saves us from Satan and his forces. In Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, the Bible says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death we're subject to lifelong slavery. As believers, we do not fear death. And while it's still the, the fear of the unknown at times, uh, our heart's attention needs to be drawn to the fact that Christ has, has, has defeated and accomplished life through death for us. That through his life and through his death, he makes life now possible for us. And so he, he defeats God's wrath. He, he absorbs God's wrath for us. He saves us from the wrath to come. But then in addition to that, he delivers us from Satan and his forces. And then in Romans chapter 8, verse 2, we're once again reminded that we have been set free from the condemnation that comes from his law. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. 
Christ saves us from these three biggest threats, as he did in the Old Testament with his people. Colossians 2, as Tyson's read this morning, 13 through 15, Christ disarms the rulers and authorities. He disarms Satan. John Piper says it's as though Christ drinks the poison tank, rendering all of Satan's weapons against us harmless. It's as though all of Satan's weapons are tied into this poison tank of God's wrath and his, his uh, condemnation towards us. And by Christ coming, he drinks that wrath. He drinks that poison for us. He dies that death for us, a substitutionary death, a perfect man dying in our place so that we can be saved. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. I want to draw our attention because Peter draws our attention to the similarities and the the parallels and the correlation between Noah's ark and the salvation that's made available to us. So in your notes there, Jesus is the better ark. I want to give you five parallels to how the ark points us to our understanding of salvation. Number one, the ark was supernaturally communicated to Noah for his salvation. The ark was supernaturally communicated to Noah for his salvation. You'll remember that Noah and his family were were living and and presumably living in in a way that they were pursuing God and pursuing worship as a descendant of Enos and a descendant of Methuselah and Enoch, Lamech, men that had turned their attention to God. Noah was leading his family to do the same. And yet, without God supernaturally communicating with him that the flood was coming and that preparations needed to be made, Noah would have perished in the flood like everyone else. Noah was a sinner. Noah needed grace. We saw last week in chapter 6 that God extended grace to him. But without God supernaturally intervening in his life, he would have lived and, and died and perished just like everyone else. And yet God comes to him supernaturally, intervenes in his life, communicates that God's judgment is coming and how to escape it. The parallel for us today, if you want to write this down, the parallel for us is that without the Holy Spirit quickening us, we too would be eternally lost. Without the Holy Spirit quickening us, we too would be eternally lost. Just as Noah needed God's divine intervention in his life to awaken him to the coming judgment and how to escape that judgment, we too needed God's intervention in our own lives. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In the face of Jesus Christ. We talked about this passage when we went through the week of creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That the same God who calls out light from darkness spoke into our hearts. And we could all think back on that day of conversion for us. There was a point in time, and you may be a little foggy on the exact day because for some our conversion was a, was a process. And while we maybe can't nail down the exact time, there is an exact time that God knows when we pass from death to life. When God shone into our hearts and revealed to us the glory of Jesus Christ. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That without that work, we're dead in our sins. We walk according to our flesh. We live according to this world. And we would perish at the second coming of Jesus Christ. But for all of us that are believers this morning, there was a point in time when God shone into our hearts supernaturally. And our our minds comprehended that, that punishment, judgment was coming. And that the only way of escape was to put ourselves into Jesus Christ. In the same way that Noah was called to put he and his family into a wooden ark to be preserved from God's judgment, 
we have been called to put ourselves into Christ. And that, that knowledge of, of what that means and, and the concept of that was revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. So we were made alive, so we celebrate Christ's resurrection, but we also turn our attention to our own spiritual resurrection that's already occurred in our life. But there was a point in time when the Holy Spirit was sent to shine into our hearts the glory of Jesus Christ, and we responded to it. We responded in faith, just as Noah responded to the supernatural communication given to him for his own salvation. Secondly, the ark had one entrance for all that would come. The ark had one entrance for all that would come. As we read through the description of of the blueprints for the ark last week, God instructed that, that Noah build one door, a door for he and the animals to enter through. In John chapter 10, verse 7, so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus is the only way to salvation as the ark was the only way to salvation. I don't know exactly how the storm played out. We know that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. How long did people perhaps um, endure during that time? We don't know. Did the last person die as the floods began to stop? I don't know. Um, I was watching a movie last night, a new TV movie called Noah's Ark, and was was just kind of watching it and seeing how it compared to the scriptural accounts. And there's a scene where, where Noah is describing what God has told him to his family, and one of his boys says, why do we have to spend all this time and money to build an ark? Why don't we just get to high ground? And Noah responds and says, it's not that kind of flood. That, that what's coming is drastically different than anything we can comprehend. And so the implication there was that there was no other provision to be saved. It wasn't that we can flee. We can't run to a different area where this flood is not coming. We can't get to higher ground. There's only one way, Noah said. There's only one way for us to be saved as he communicated it to his family. We build this ark and we enter through this door. The same door that, that we see in the New Testament, a door that Christ proclaims, he is the only way to salvation. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Number three, the ark offered complete protection until it was no longer needed. The ark offered complete protection until it was no longer needed. Peter is describing salvation and the security that comes from salvation. Because in 1 Peter, he's writing to people that are being persecuted, that are being attacked. Threats are coming to these people that Peter writes to. And, and Peter wants them to understand their salvation in the context of Noah. Peter makes that parallel for us. So we're not forcing this. We're not trying to, to reinterpret an Old Testament passage because it sounds cool that, that, the, that the door of, of the ark was one door and Jesus is the door. Peter makes the parallel for us. He says, your salvation is very similar to Noah's salvation through the ark. The ark offered complete protection until it was no longer needed. We, we talked last week that, that Noah was told up front that he was going to survive that if he did all that God had commanded, put himself in the ark, he would survive, his family would survive, and there would be opportunity for covenant relationship after the fact. So there's assurance given to Noah. There's, there's, there's no, uh, qu- there should be no questioning by Noah, are we going to make it? As he's building this ark, 
He can trust the blueprints. He can trust the instructions because God has promised you will make it through the flood. It's interesting to note back in Genesis 6.14, in looking at those blueprints and instruction, in Genesis 6.14 it says, Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. Noah was to cover the ark inside and outside with pitch. This was a type of of sealer to keep the water out. Now let's remember that the water is being used as an avenue or as a vessel of God's judgment. So what we're talking about here is, is God is instructing Noah and he says, you seal it, you cover it to keep the judgment out. You pitch it on the inside and the outside to make sure that the judgment doesn't seep into the ark. Now, it's interesting to note that this word for pitch is not used uh, when, it, when it's the, the normal word for pitch is not used in this instance. Instead, it's a word used that's also used for the concept of atonement 70 times in the Old Testament. This word for pitch is used to make atonement. So when we're talking about the sacrifices and the children of Israel taking the blood and it being a picture of atonement that that Christ's blood one day will do what these animal sacrifices can't. But in the meantime, these animal sacrifices and their blood cover your sins from God's judgment. Genesis 3, that in God's forbearance, he passed over. He could have brought judgment, but he, he delayed his judgment so that it could be poured out on Christ. But these animal sacrifices, their blood was a temporary covering. It was a temporary atonement, protection from God's judgment. So the picture here, God is communicating to Noah that covering has to happen if you're going to be spared from God's wrath. He says, you cover this ark inside and out with this pitch, with this atonement, with this covering, because God's wrath is coming and you need to be spared from it. God shut Noah and his family in the ark, Genesis seven sixteen, showing us that God is responsible for keeping them. We know that there's something special about this door because God's the one that, that, that shuts it. We don't, we don't have a picture of Noah and his, and his boys trying to raise this door up and trying to seal it. This is something that God did. God shuts them in. The picture being that God is going to preserve them. Ultimately, their protection lies with God. Revelation 3, 7 gives us a picture of that as well, that that God has authority to open and to close. It says, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. It's important to note that as the flood ends in Genesis 8, that all of the passengers and all of the animals that entered the ark exit the ark. Genesis 8, 18. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. They spend over a year on the ark. They spent over a year on the ark. The opportunity for disease and for death was very real. The opportunity for accidents, right? So that the ark's being tossed around in the midst of this judgment. The opportunity for some life to be lost existed. And yet what we find here is that God preserves life all the way through. That both human and animal are spared during this. That the ark serves its purpose and there's no flaws to it. That it's a perfect ark that preserves the passengers all the way to the end. The parallel for us in the New Testament is that Jesus seals us with his spirit. Offering complete protection as we persevere until the end. So while the ark was a temporary salvation, it was temporary in that it provided complete protection until the flood was ended. And then, then then the family gets off and they no longer use the ark. We as believers are sealed until the day of redemption. Jesus is our ark, preserves us all the way through our life until Christ returns. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
Bible tells us in Colossians 3, 3 that we are hidden in Christ. It says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. We are being guarded in Christ, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter or First Peter chapter one verse three it says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith." For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So we talk about being spared from God's wrath. But God's wrath hasn't come yet. Right? God's wrath comes on the day of judgment. And so we are saved. And we say that we're saved from God's wrath. Looking towards the future when we need that salvation. And so the Bible communicates to us that that salvation. That needed salvation is being guarded for us. That we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. That, we're, that, we, that we have credit. In the future, that when we need that sparing, when we need that salvation, it's provided for us. That when God returns, when Christ comes to bring judgment, we are spared from that judgment. Much in the same way that Noah was spared from God's judgment by being hidden in the ark. Number four, the view from the ark was upward, protecting Noah's family from all that was perishing around them. The view from the ark was upward, protecting Noah's family from all that was perishing around them. It's by God's grace, I believe, that, that he did not allow windows to be built on the sides of the ark. That the only, the only entrance for light and for air was at the top. Because I imagine that there was emotional attachment that Noah and his family had with those that did not enter the ark that day. There was emotional attachment to their house, to their lifestyle, things that were about to be washed away. Things that were about to be destroyed. And yet God forces their view to be upward the whole time that they're in the ark. But they can't see the outside. They can't see those things perishing. In the same way that, that Lot and his family were commanded to leave and to keep their eyes pointed in one direction and not to turn back. Noah's family is not allowed the opportunity to turn back. They're not allowed to see those things around them. The Bible commands us to keep our eyes pointed upward as well as Tyson referenced for us this morning. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it's not just that we keep our eyes pointed upward in general. It's that we keep them pointed on a specific person. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, Seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ, as the, the parallel for us, Christ as the author and finisher of our faith is to remain the focus of our heavenly view. And then number five here, the entrance into the ark was a response of faith and trust in God's provision. The entrance into the ark was a response of faith and trust in God's provision. The picture that Peter gives us in his account is that Noah's family was being carried through the judgment waters. The flood pictures death, burial, and resurrection. You see, the waters buried the entire earth. Buried it in death. And yet those same waters are what causes Noah and his family to rise to the top. And the picture is that when Noah's family is ultimately spared, when that ark touches back down on that mountain, touches dry land, and, and his family exits the ark, it's a picture of resurrection. It's a picture of new life for Noah and his family. The old life has been cleansed. The old life has been done away with, and the sin that was there has been dealt with. And Noah and his family exit to new life. The parallel for us as Christians is that we are carried through the judgment of God. By being preserved in Christ through baptism. Let's turn our attention back to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Some key points that I want us to draw on as we wrap up today. 
For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Some things that we can draw from in this passage as we see ourselves being carried through the judgment of God by being in Christ. Number one, Christ's substitutionary sacrifice is sufficient to bring me to God. It's sufficient to bring me to God, the Bible tells us. That Christ suffered once for sins, that he was righteous and he suffered for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It's the gospel message that's been proclaimed ever since time began. As, as God communicated the gospel in Genesis 3.15, God continued to communicate the gospel. This, this reference that sounds a little weird that... Um, that he was put to death in the flesh, but alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the times of Noah. I don't believe that, that Christ went to hell during that time of, of being dead and, and raising to life. I believe this is a reference to the fact that through his spirit, he communicated through Noah, a preacher of righteousness, to these spirits before they were dead. He communicated the gospel through Noah, a preacher of righteousness, but through Noah's preaching, people rejected the gospel and perished in the flood. Christ's substitutionary death is made available. It was made available in the Old Testament. Noah preached that message. He preached that same gospel. They formally did not obey, even though God was patient in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Secondly, baptism, Peter says, is is very similar to the, to the Ark of Noah. Baptism is my outward expression of an inward appeal to God for cleansing. It's an outward expression of an inward appeal to God for cleansing. Peter's very careful so that we don't get confused. He does not want us to believe that baptism saves us. That the, the formal act of, of coming before a church and, and being dunked in the water, that that formal act is not what saves mankind. Instead, baptism is an outward expression of something that's already happened in the heart. He says, baptism saves you, not the removal of dirt from the body, not that act of going into the water, but the inward expression of wanting to be baptized into Christ. Galatians 3.27 talks about this. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. It's the idea of us being put into Christ just like Noah was put into the ark. The expression then is that I trust you to take me into Christ like Noah was taken into the ark. To make Jesus the substitute for my sins and to bring me through these waters of death and judgment into new and everlasting life through the resurrection of Jesus, my Lord. That's the picture that Peter gives to us. As he talks about baptism, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus. He says it's very similar to Noah and the ark. <coughs> that Noah was put into the ark, that he was spared from God's judgment, and that he came out on the other side with new life before him. We as believers are baptized into Jesus, we're put into Jesus, we're spared from God's judgment, and we come through on the other side, that one day we too will be resurrected to new life before us. Number three, the expression of faith through baptism leads to a clear conscience, the Bible tells us here in 1 Peter 3. And then the last point here is that our ark... Jesus, he remains for us. So while there's speculation as to what happened to Noah's ark, we know where our ark is. We know where, where our salvation is. And Peter reminds us, he says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, 
with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. The encouragement, the hope to us this morning is that we're being preserved for that day of judgment. So much like Noah made preparation by building the ark, Christ has made all the preparation for us. We've been placed into Christ. We are enduring until the end. And one day when Jesus returns and God's wrath comes, we too will be spared from that judgment. I want to draw your attention in closing to Genesis chapter 8. We're going to come back and we're going to cover 7 and 8 in more detail in the coming weeks. But in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. Just to kind of show you that God has always had the resurrection on his mind. Genesis chapter 8 verse 1. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed The rain from the heavens were restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the water had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month, and the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Moses specifically tells us the day that the ark rests on the mountain it's the day when when salvation was really understood for them that 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 we've been saved from this we've touched down on dry land gives us the specific date says that it's the the seventh month on the seventh day of the month and as i was reading and studying it's it's unique to to see the significance of this day now some of this understanding is is contingent on uh the dating of the jewish calendar so there's there's a lot of arguments as to whether Christ died on Wednesday, whether he died on Thursday, or whether he died on Friday. And there's arguments for for all three of those. There's also arguments as to when Christ was actually resurrected. We know that the women showed up early Sunday morning and the body was already gone. We're not told exactly when resurrection happened. So there's, there's some arguments that say what I'm about to tell you is exact on the day. But I'm going to share with you some significant events that I can at least confidently tell you while it may not have been the exact day, depending again on when Jesus actually died and rose again, that it all happened in the same weekend. I can confidently tell you that, that the events that I'm about to share with you all happened on the same weekend in the Jewish calendar as the day that Jesus resurrected, starting with the ark touching down on dry land. This is significant because this points us to the fact that resurrection has always been on God's mind. That as he brings Noah through the judgment waters, allows that ark to touch down on dry land, symbolizing resurrection. Because like I said, this is new life for Noah and his family. It's not resurrected life, right? Because we're going to see that Noah falls right into sin real quick after he gets off the ark. But there's still that understanding of new life moving forward. Specifically, this day touches down and moving forward, Noah and his family have new life before them. The calendar system gets changed in the book of Exodus as Passover is instituted. God changes the seventh month in the Jewish calendar to now being the first month. You find that in Exodus 12 and Exodus 13. So God shifts the calendar so it would be equivalent to July becoming January for us moving forward. Okay, so it's the seventh month at this time, but then moving forward it becomes the first month. This would also be the time frame when the children of Israel crossed the Red Sea. The exact day that they go into Egypt is the exact day they come out, 430 years later. And it's significant because they too pass through judgment waters, right? As they leave Egypt, the implication is they're to die to their old life in Egypt and they're to be renewed into the new life that Christ has promised them. As he's leading them with the cloud and the fire, he leads them through the judgment waters, God's hands hold back the flood, hold back that Red Sea that eventually will come and consume the Egyptians that are following. But they enter into new life. Uh, the, the final exodus from Egypt. Egypt is no longer a threat on the exact same time frame, possibly the exact same day that the ark touched down on the mountain. The same day that Jesus rose from the dead. It's also the same 
time frame that God quit giving manna to his people. You'll remember that God provided manna in the, in the wilderness. As they wandered, he provided food because they weren't staying long enough anywhere to grow crops. But it's also this time frame when the manna stops and the Bible says that they begin to eat fruit and food in the promised land. New life for the children of Israel. Their old life in the wilderness done away with. They're now brought into new life in the promised land. It's also the time when, when God delivers his people from the hands of Haman. You'll remember that Haman hated the children of Israel. Specifically because he hated Mordecai, who he felt like showed him up and didn't give him the honor and respect that he deserved. Now, I was reading in, in the book of Esther, and what, you, what I failed to realize is that when Haman decided to do this, it was the first month. He decided, you know what, we're going to issue a day when it's, it's, it's okay and it's right to just kill Jewish people. But the Bible tells us it was going to take a year for that to actually be communicated to everybody. So the plan was for that to happen in the 12th month of the Jewish calendar. It was planned in the first month. That's when Mordecai becomes aware of it. That's when he calls Esther to fast and to pray and to go before the king. That's when she has her, her festivals to, to entice and entreat the, the king to come and to listen to her appeal. And the, the, the night that, that, that all gets worked out and, and the king becomes aware that Haman has been working behind the scenes, treachery against his queen, the same time frame when the ark touches down on the mountain, when the children of Israel left the, the old life in Egypt, the same time frame when the manna stopped and they entered into the promised land, the same time when Jesus comes back from the dead. This is all pointing to the future resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it's significant it's a significant time for the Jewish people in their calendar. It's significant because all of these things are about resurrection. It's about the future hope. It's about future life that stood before God's people in each one of these incidences. This also would have fallen around the time of the Feast of the First Fruits. We understand Jesus to be the first fruits in 1 Corinthians 15. This is where we understand his resurrection to be different than any of the other resurrections listed in Scripture. It's a unique resurrection because Christ is no longer subjected to any kind of death. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. That man that came, that death came from is Adam. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So we come together as believers this morning celebrating the fact that, that there have been small pictures of resurrection all through Scripture. Whether it's individuals being raised to life, but one day dying again. Whether it's with God's people being delivered as a type of resurrection. Being delivered from Egypt. Being rescued through the Red Sea. Being delivered from a man named Haman being delivered from starvation in the wilderness and brought into the promised land to eat the fruit. Whether it's individuals, whether it's people groups, God has been creating a desire and a hope of resurrection all through Scripture. It started with Noah when Noah's family came through the judgment waters, spared, and experienced a type of resurrection as they exited. But as we've seen, Christ is the better ark. Because Christ, as he brings us through God's judgment, on the other side, Christ is bringing a type of resurrection, a type of new life. That's what we've always longed for. So even as the children of Israel entered into a promised land, even as Noah and his family exited the ark, it was always with a, with a, with a reality that sin was going to continue. Noah and his family, they grow and they raise their kids and, and they see sin around them still. The children of Israel enter a promised land and they see sin around them still. When Jesus returns, the book of Revelation promises us, assures us that death will be defeated, that sorrow will be removed, 
It's the hope that we have as believers. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of the resurrection this morning. We thank you that in looking back into the Old Testament, we can see that you were pointing your people to a greater reality. That as you provided deliverance, as you provided salvation in the Old Testament, it was always incomplete. It always created a desire for more. There was always another threat that was coming. And so we see your faithfulness in the Old Testament, and we're encouraged in the greater revelation of the New Testament that there's coming a day when there will be no future threats, when there'll be no need for future salvations, that when you return in your resurrected, glorified body, when you return in all your glory, when you return bringing both judgment and salvation, Father, we praise you and thank you this morning that those of us that are believers will weather that judgment, will be carried through that judgment, just as Noah was carried through the judgment of his time. We too will be carried through that judgment of fire because we've been placed in Christ. Father, we thank you for the supernatural revelation that you brought into our hearts for all of us at different points in our life. And yet we agree about the fact that there was a time and a place when the Holy Spirit shone into our hearts, revealed to us that there was only one door, only one way of escape from the coming judgment. Father, we're thankful that you revealed to us the glories of Jesus Christ and that you've placed us in Christ. Father, we pray that our view would remain upward towards the author and finisher of our faith. That as we see this world deteriorating around us, God, help us not to become distracted by the things of this world. Instead, Father, help us to keep our attention on eternity. Father, we pray that you would use your Holy Spirit to preserve us. That we would endure as your saints until the end of time. God, keep us encouraged as a family. God, keep us encouraged as a church as we celebrate the resurrection today, but realizing the story's not yet complete, that there's still the hope of future resurrection for us as your children. We celebrate that truth. Help the faithfulness that you demonstrated to Noah and his family in the ark. Encourage us with, the own, with your own faithfulness that you're demonstrating to us as you carry us through in Christ. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.